When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Hello and welcome to episode 234 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. Firstly, as ever, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, without whom we would not be able to produce this podcast. Likewise, everyone that has purchased an item from the Ministry of Arts merch shop. The links for both the Patreon page and the merch shop can be found in a Linktree drop-down box over on Ministry of Arts Instagram profile. But back to this week's episode... I'm sure you're the same as me and learn a little bit from every one of these conversations. And obviously, you learn a little bit more from some conversations than others. And this is definitely one of those where you learn a little more. Or I did at least, anyway. There was a poll a little while ago as to which was the listener's favourite episode. And in the top three was episode number seven, which was Simon Callery, who worked very closely with archaeologists. Today's guest... Piers Secunda is very much of that ilk. He's travelled to cities in Iraq that have been culturally obliterated by ISIS and made artworks from their remnants. One of which that comes to mind is making pigment from the ashes of a museum in Iraq. He also makes moulds from relics and casting using a hardened paint, which is a whole other story. He done likewise on a British island called Alderney that's just off of Guernsey, which was occupied by the Germans in the Second World War and had one of their concentration camps on it, which was new to me. And I feel this really is one of those episodes that you would not want to miss. So please come with me as I spoke to Piers Secunda. 
Gary, how are you? How are you, man? How are you? I'm very well. I'm sorry I'm two minutes late. Oh, that's, that doesn't bother me in the absolute slightest. <laughs> okay, very good. Doesn't How's it bother going? me at all. Not bad. Where are you at the moment? Uh, very close to Lancaster Gate, near oh, Pannington. Nice. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And how are you finding it? It's a nice place there, isn't it? Yeah, it's not bad at all. It's a bit of old London, you know. It hasn't really changed since the 80s. Yeah. It's got that little bit of grit, you know? <laughs> yeah, everyone likes a little bit of grit, don't they, eh? Yeah, otherwise the place is cleansed. Yeah, and there's too I've many used... like that, aren't there? Shiny yeah. silver buildings aren't any good. I'll leave them behind. Yes. Piers, I do have seven questions that I ask every guest. Go for it, yeah. And the first being, how would you explain what you do to someone that wouldn't know your work? It's a pretty simple one in many respects. Um, I'm an artist. I make art predominantly about the destruction of culture. So I travel to places where things are happening, where culture is being damaged. And um, I document it in my work. Um, I make art about why it's happening, what it means, what the effect is, and what it tells us about where we are as people. You said that you travel to places that are encountering or that have encountered a destruction of culture. Most often, yeah. There is so many places that are having that in the last 10 years, isn't there? Yeah, it's rife. Sadly, the most, uh, the, the largest volume of destruction of culture happens during wartime. Yeah. And we're living in a, in a, in a phase of a lot of war uh, on the edge of Europe, in the Middle East. War's been grinding on in Iraq and Afghanistan for decades now, and it uh, doesn't show any signs of slowing down. And uh, so Afghanistan was a focus for my work for a while. Most people seem to think that the Taliban were about the worst that humanity could generate. Of course, there's always something worse. And when ISIS started tearing up the Middle East, I traveled to the Kurdish region of Iraq in the northeast of Iraq, with the help of the government, the, the uh, Kurdish authorities mm. and their military, the Peshmerga, and started making attempts to get to ancient sites where I could make molds of damage to ancient sites, uh, damage done by ISIS, and then bring the material back to the studio and make works of art with it. Uh, where was the studio at the time, in the UK or over there? My studio's been for a, about 23 years, has been in East London, near, very close to London Fields. Oh, okay. And was it difficult getting those artefacts back to the UK? Well, I didn't bring back artefacts. What I brought back was uh, moulds of damage. Oh, sorry. So I, that's all right. So I, I travel, when I'm, when I'm intending to mould things, I travel with dental putty, alginate, which comes in tubs, which are about the size of a, um, a half pint of milk. And I put them in my suitcase and it's a very easy material to use. It makes a forensic quality reproduction of a surface. You squeeze a tube of hardener into the putty and mix it with your hands and it's quite greasy. And then press it onto the surface that you want to mold. 10 minutes later, it peels off, it keeps its shape. Um, I put them in the bag and I carry the bag, usually on an airplane back to the UK and um, I never check them into my luggage because there's always the risk that you know your suitcase, suitcase ends up in yeah yeah 
you know, I'm not going to quite say Timbuktu, but you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Sometimes yeah. it's never seen again. It has happened, you know, it has happened. So, um, so I always hand carry the molds and any other material that I have, which is precious in that moment. Um, for example, I just came back from Iraq with these two bottles and nice. you can probably see that slightly blue. I can. So what yeah. they are is ink, which are squeezed out of rubber pads, um, which were accompanied by rubber stamps which were in a display in a museum in Iraq, and the ink was used to rubber stamp paperwork oh, wow. for ISIS. So that ink authorized everything that you can think of from uh, professional looting, sanctioning of looting, to um, the sale of people, yeah. tax. Uh, for example, in the month or so before Mosul was um, invaded by the coalition of uh, armies that had got together to remove ISIS from Mosul. Um, ISIS taxed the transport of grain across Mosul government and made in the region of $400,000 in one month. Wow. So if you had, had paid your tax, you had to show a, a receipt and the receipt had to have the relevant rubber stamp made with that ink. Was you going to with the intention to obtain those stamps and ink or was did you just come across that and have the idea while you were there oh uh, the the last time i went out to to iraq i went to see a museum which is in the kurdish region which is in, it, it's in a city called selamania and i saw those rubber stamps and the director of the museum is a painter he's an artist and he said you know you and i should collaborate we should we should find a way to do something together and i was looking at the rubber stamps thinking it's definitely ink in them. <laughs> There's something there. We, we, we're going to do this. And, and, and then COVID came along and the whole thing got pushed back. But sometimes I travel not knowing what I'm going to find. Uh, and I find something compelling and I start finding a way to either mold it or photograph it or draw it or document it in some way through the work. With the, with the ink, I knew for a few years what, a, what my intention was. You know, I had wanted to go back to that museum and, and get hold of some of the ink so that I could could make print, probably prints with it. Um, so that's now a project which I can do. But it's several years down the line. It's taken several years to, to procure the ink. Just on a slightly lighter note, have you ever been stopped going out of the UK with these sort of materials? Because it's so hard to speak aesthetically to someone in a bureaucratic position because the an two worlds just collide, don't they? Yeah, I have a tactic. And the tactic is that I always travel with exhibition catalogues that show work of mine, usually older work that's very colorful. They don't want to see documentation with ISIS written all over it at the end. Yeah. So, I, so I take catalogues that have very brightly colored works and I say, oh, this is what I do and this is what I make. And, and, and if I'm really enthusiastic about it and getting excited about telling them the process and stuff, usually they sort of think, Okay, this is this this guy's no kind of a threat to us. Yeah, yeah. On one occasion, I, I, I sent a whole load of alginate to Afghanistan to Kabul, thinking I'd better send it because <laughs> it, it gets taken out of my suitcase. There's some there. Yeah. And it ended up sitting on the uh, in a box in a container, ultimately on the tarmac at the airport in Kabul for about six months. Wow. 
and it never got released because they said it's a medical material, which is true, it is. Yeah. It's a dental putty. So it has to be licensed in a certain way and you have to show the paperwork that says yeah. that you're connected to a medical organization or an NGO and it never got released. That's the only time so far. Did you have any creativity in the home growing up, Piers? Uh, I was left to my own devices to a considerable degree. Okay, so, and where, where was growing up? Uh, um, in between, well, it was mostly West Sussex when I was a child. Okay. Um, we, we had a place that was a, a cottage just outside a town called Midhurst in West Sussex. Um, and it's, it's very rural. It's a town um, 25 minutes uh, from Chichester, the nearest big town. The thing that, the thing that always intrigued me was that I had a sensitivity in regard to um, the visual arts from a very, very young age. I used to walk about 10 minutes down the road to go to my primary school. And on Fridays, um, it was the day when after lunch we had the art class. And I used to put on a tie to walk to school on that day. Because for me, it was a special day because it was Brilliant. art. It's the day when we were going to do art, you know. And I would come home and I'd sit around drawing and my parents and my brother would watch TV or whatever, but I'd usually sit in between them and television or some something like that and, and just draw and paint, you know. It's the only thing that ever really interested me. Um, I learned really to draw and paint. I didn't have any tutoring at that young age or teaching directly. So what I did was I copied works out of books. Um, so by the time I was about 13 years old, I copied pretty much every drawing and painting that Vincent van Gogh had ever made. <laughs> um, and, and some of them half a dozen times. Yeah. And then my grandmother, who was Dutch, said, we're going to go to Amsterdam oh, in man. July and we're going to go to the Van Gogh Museum because it's the centenary of his death, which was 1990. Um, so off we went. And um, I remember reading all the text panels and realizing, because I'd been looking at the pictures, focusing only on them. And I, I, I just, when there was lots of text, my, my focus and interest was the images. So I just went straight past it. So I didn't know his story. So I learned his story when she took me to the museum and I read all the text panels. And at the end, he shoots himself. And I was really shocked and disturbed. Oh, wow. Him. I didn't know. So I left thinking uh, being an artist is a thing you can do with your life. Yeah. You know, hopefully it doesn't end up like that, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I walked out of the place and I said to my grandmother, uh, the, the, the word for grandmother in Dutch is Oma. And I, I touched her arm and I said, Oma, can I be an artist? And she said, yes. Oh, and I thought, brilliant. well, that's it. By the time I got to the bottom of the steps, as far as I was concerned, I'm an artist. That's, that's where you're And it just never looked back. And how old was you then? 13. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, so that was story. that was it from 13. That's all I ever wanted, you know, to, to, to make a living out of it and to exist off the back of making art. Brilliant. But that realisation that that world is there for you just shifts your entire future, if you like, doesn't it, there and then? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. From from that trip to Amsterdam, Piers, yeah. where was you then? Once you realised that's what you wanted to do? 
did you take any steps towards it? I know you was very young. Um, it, it just focused me even more, basically. Brilliant. And it made me more and more determined. Um, one of my teachers at school said, you know, you should go to an art school. Then I said, what's that? And what age was this, Piers, sorry? Sorry? What, what age was this when she said that? About seven. Oh, oh wow, okay. Yeah. And I said, what's that? And the teacher said, it's a school where you just do art. And I just thought, <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah. Like, what, what kind of place is that? Where, do, where is it? How, how do I, why am I here? Yeah, what <laughs> bus know? do I need That's to be? That's where I need there. to be. You know, and so from then on, it was just, you know, I, I want to go to art school. Yeah. I was going to get into an art school no matter what. So from 13 to 16, you was obviously in your secondary school and yeah. was art the main focus then? Yeah, to such a degree that the art teacher gave me the key for the art block. Oh, brilliant. Um, and he'd never given it to anybody before. He said, you know, for God's sakes, don't lose this, you know. Yeah. And don't worry, it was like the most, it was the golden, the golden ticket, you know. It was, yeah. it was the most valuable thing I had. So, and of course, I never lost it. Um, but I spent so much time in there it was the volume of work that I produced was for him was completely overwhelming. He said he never had a student anywhere near as productive. Um, and he was an interesting art teacher. He, he, he was a ceramicist and he'd invented a lot of glazes for ceramics and he has work in the V&A. He passed away a few years ago, Oh wow! but he was a really, he was a really good guy. And he, he was sort of writing books about how to different, different systems for, for, firing and glazing ceramics um but he was quite hands-off he didn't really teach directly what he'd do is he'd come and sort of look at what i've produced and then he'd say if you need any pointers about how to paint that just let me know you know um yeah, but he yeah. kind of left me pretty much to my own devices because he could see that I had direction of one form or another and i was trying to figure out how to make things and how it was all going to work and you know I was going to modernize the way that I was making paintings because it was it was sort of slightly stuck in impressionism and post-impressionism yeah, yeah. because that's how I taught myself to draw and paint. Um, so I had to kind of drag it forwards. And he kept telling me, think of ways to make art that relate to the world that you're in now. And what he meant was try not to paint like it's the 19th century or the 18th yeah. century. Try and paint like it's the 21st century. But what I heard was try and make art about what's happening now. Yeah. And so that notion got into my head. And I came to the conclusion that the most, just on my own, that the most significant thing that an artist could do was to make art literally about the time that they're living, which I, I fully subscribe to. And as a result of that idea, my work gradually went from not being completely abstract to mostly abstract but with figurative elements and then over time over time became completely about geopolitics and what's happening in the world because i felt that in in some way making work about that was much more fulfilling um after september the 11th 2001 i was living in uh, northern new york at the time the countryside about two hours to the north of the city. Um, after September the 11th, I couldn't focus on comparative aesthetics any longer. 
making abstract work. I just couldn't. It was it was it was gone. It just seemed pointless. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it felt like I was fiddling around with the sort of vacuousness of fashion or something. Yeah. It just didn't hold any weight at all. I've spoken to many artists on here, peers that um, not necessarily you know nine eleven, but but yeah. moments like that, those groundbreaking moments they may not be worldwide groundbreaking moments but they may just be personal ones like the passing of a loved one or or something that that affects the the heart and mind of the artist and they do have that realization where they just go why the hell am i doing this when i could be doing this yeah you know, and something yeah. with to, to them at that moment that had yeah. more heart soul and gumption you know yeah absolutely and sometimes, sometimes that little kick, that jolt is needed because you, you, you suddenly look at what you've been making and you think, where is the humanity? Where is the interaction with human beings and the understanding of what we are in this? Yeah. And for me, it just simply wasn't there. I was making, a, I, I, was, I was developing a studio practice where I had basically decided, I decided when I was 18 years old that I didn't like the, the edges of the painting because I had no formal composition training. So yeah. I just started making a painting in the middle of the painting. <laughs> and when I got to the edges, it was done. Yeah. It was really yeah. basic stuff. You know, it was yeah. seriously simple logic. But, but I've seen I someone draw, sorry to butt in there, but I've seen someone draw a portrait like that where they've literally started with the nostrils yeah. and worked out and yeah. it, it was blowing my mind i'm like but how can you work like that but you know if it's the way they work it makes sense to them who the bloody hell am i to, to doesn't say matter. Anything, you know? yeah it doesn't matter i mean painters paint in all sorts of different ways yeah but one day i made this painting and i reached the edges and i knew i had an issue with the traditional format of painting but i wasn't I was aware of it, but I hadn't, there hadn't been a penny drop moment where I suddenly said, ah, that's what's going on here. Yeah. And I got to the edges of this painting and I hadn't fitted in everything that I wanted to. And I suddenly thought, I need, I need a system of painting where the paint continues beyond the canvas. Yeah. And then a few weeks later, I had dropped something off the back of a table. I had a little, I had my own studio at school wow. in the art block. They gave me a little room, which was a bathroom. <laughs> And I put, I put some wooden boards over the bath and set up an easel and, you know, all the, there was this big flat surface next to me and I had all my paints laid out and, 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 and I painted and, and off I went. And there was a radiator that was behind the bath. It was a very low radiator. And something went off the edge of the piece of wood and it, wrapped, it bounced behind the radiator and it was gone. And I thought, oh, crikey, I can't remember what it was, but whatever it was, I needed it. Yeah. And so I ended up getting a piece of wire and trying to fish it out. <laughs> and in the process, I pulled out a tube of paint, which had gone back there as well, but which had been behind the radiator for about a year and it, it had gone hard. Yeah. And it was one of those old tin tubes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, where it's quite soft and it's not quite lead, but you can peel it off, yeah. you know. And it was really, the tube of paint was crimson alizarin and it had gone hard and I peeled it off and inside was this perfect crinkled cast of a tube of crimson alizarin. And I thought, oh, that's something. I don't know what it is, but that's something. 
And then there was a penny drop moment a bit later on where I suddenly thought, hang on a second, I don't like the limits of the canvas and I've got this mold of this tube of paint. Maybe that's a way to make paintings. It's a painting because it's only made of paint. You can't <laughs> deny it's painting. You can't. So maybe this is a way forward. Three years later, I was casting acrylic paint, acrylic mediums to make blocks with layers and colors and layers and stuff. And then I was trying to make molds of objects so that I could put the paint into the molds and reproduce objects. And now, 29 years later, I can reproduce. I go to these places, I make molds of broken stone texture, for example, like inside the Mosul Museum after ISIS has smashed it up. I bring the molds back to my studio and I integrate those into a relief sculpture which goes on the wall, which is made of an industrial floor paint. Brilliant. So the prevailing material in my work is still paint. It's an industrial paint, cures overnight, and I can cast with it, and it makes a perfect reproduction of a texture. Forensic quality, it will lift the alginate texture, which can capture great down to the level of grains of sand, and it reproduces it perfectly. Now, I'd read that you use um, industrial floor paint, I figured yeah. that you paint the mold that you've uh, the cast that you've created, and it's oh. not. So you're actually using the paint which hardens as a sculptural material. Correct. Yeah. Sorry, I thought you was using it as a. That's all right. To no, add it's color. To it's good. But it, it's it's not easy amazing. to understand because it's not an obvious thing to do. It's not an obvious way to go about making work. But part of the reason that I do it is because I want to release the paint from the restraints of the canvas. Partly because the paint is capable of doing a hell of a lot more. I've made very, very complex objects, very small, spheres within spheres, dozens of them. And it's a reproduction used using the industrial paint of um, a traditional trade craft object that's made in China, which is called a puzzle ball. Yeah, I know, I know. They have holes through them. If you can line up all the holes through all the layers, you complete the puzzle, it's extremely yeah. difficult. Um, so I've made those out of paint as well, I made a whole series of them. Um, those are about the most technically complex, complex things I've made out of paint. Um, but I've also made objects which weigh three quarters of a ton and are a meter cubed. For example, it sits on the floor, it comes apart in layers. It's a work which is called a decade of rejected works reconfigured as a one meter cube. Perfect. So it's all these assemblages which I made, which I then looked at and thought, what is this? Why am I doing this? Yeah. And I took them to, to, to pieces with this uh, hammer and a chisel and breaking the paint with a hammer and a chisel is one of my techniques. And, and I, can, I can nap the paint with the edge of a hammer, like napping flint, I can break it in certain directions. Wow. You know, so the the can I just ask a technical question? Yeah. So on a normal artwork, would it be like an inch thick, possibly? It's quite it's quite liquid. It's um it's not very viscous. It'll fill up a mold, and there'll be a perfect surface that's like glass. Yeah. It self levels very quickly, and it, it exotherms. So I mix a hardener into the paint. It's basically, it's, it's effectively a plasticizing paint. Yeah. It becomes a plastic. It's a sort of resinous material. It's like, um, it's like glass. Oh, okay. But it's tougher. If I pour it six inches or 10 inches deep 
And if I decide that I don't like what I've made, I can break it to pieces and recycle it again. Oh, wow. You know, in the same way that you might say uh, a bird might put stones in a glass of water to get the water level up to the top or something like that. You know, it's just the same material. So, so I just put the pieces into the next cast and then I pour a smaller volume of paint. So there's a relentless recycling process okay. to work. There's very, very little waste. And the texture of it is incredibly hard. It takes a if it's more than a couple of inches thick, in fact, if it's a couple of inches thick, it takes a sledgehammer to break it. And I can put it outdoors and leave it outdoors indefinitely. And it's stronger than bronze. It doesn't age. It doesn't crumble. The surface doesn't change. So it's the perfect outdoor sculpture material in many respects. Um, and that's an area that I've started to sort of make designs for. Um, I, I designed once a bridge made entirely out of paint because I like the idea that painting transported you to the next place. So like across a stream or something, you know, like, how do you get there? Via the painting. You know, via <laughs> painting. Yeah. So it's like it's the painting man. of a bridge. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And then I thought, oh, I could make like a Monet bridge, you know, with the, yeah, all the yeah. wisteria and take me my entire life. But uh, what yeah, color is the paint know. to start with? It comes in any RAL color. Are you able which to I think add, there are a couple of hundred? Are you able to add pigment to it? To it's a little bit tricky. It, that needs to be done by the manufacturer, but oh, I okay. can paint it once it's done. I usually buy it white because in it, as white I can buy a four and a half liter container. Um, but if I want a color, I have to buy hundreds of liters, and it's a specific order. It's a special order. And I never need a large volume of a particular color. So what I do is I make everything with white paint. And then if I want to paint it, I paint it over the top. And did you, did you come across that idea? Or was it something you saw that was already being used or that had already been done? I've seen one person using it subsequently. Prior to you using it? No, afterwards. Afterwards. Very recently, actually. Um, and lots and lots of people have emailed me over the years and said, do you mind telling me what this, I you know, don't want to ask you for a trade secret, but and said, no, 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 no. Yeah, hey, it's this is what it is. This is what you can buy it. This is what it costs. If you wow. buy a large volume, you get this discount. These great people, they sell it to you. You know, have, so as, have as fun. As far as you're aware, yeah. Piers, are you the, was you the first person that used it as a sculptural material? I believe so, yeah. Brilliant. Because I, I, I started, the, sorry again? Oh, sorry, I just went, how cool is that? It's, it's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the, the, the passage to get to that was this. When I was living in upstate New York, I was trying really, really seriously trying to cast the paint. I was really focused on it. I was doing house painting work to make the money to buy massive quantities of paint. I mean, I'm talking about um, 45 gallon containers. Wow. That was one order. Yeah. And the acrylic manufacturer, which is called Golden Artist Colors, it's, I think it's oh, the yeah, biggest yeah. acrylic maker in the world. They were living and working in a place called New Berlin, which is way up in the northwest of New York. It's about four hours drive from where I was. And one day they called me and they said, you've been buying large volumes of this paint <laughs> and now you're buying an industrial quantity. Yeah. And we're concerned that you're reselling it, repackaging it and yeah. reselling it. It was, it, was, it was actually contacted by the owners of the company, wow. Mark and Barbara Golden. It's like Santa Claus in his life, you know. <laughs> This is great. So I sent them photos of what I was doing, and they said, "Oh, this is really interesting. Wow, this is okay. Now we understand. We're happy to sell it to you." 
but they didn't realize, but I'd, I'd been in touch with them already and I'd been speaking to their technical department, which was a guy in a basement in their building. Brilliant. And he was called Toby Thompson. Who no one of, probably ever speaks to. Yeah, yeah, he was this guy kind of like under in a darkened room under a kind of desk lamp, <laughs> kind of like trying to figure out the the, the, the kind of connecting mon yeah. molecular bonds to make the paint that he you know was yeah. being told to produce. And I said, I'm trying to make a paint which works in molds, but that keeps its color. And he said, Oh, those two things contradict themselves because the filler in the paint is white, and so red paint will dry pink. And I said, I know. And that's my challenge. <laughs> that's why I'm calling that's you. That's why I'm calling you. <laughs> and, and and I've been through, put through to you. Oh, you need to speak to Toby Thompson. And I, oh, okay. So he said, I'm going to give this a go. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll produce a couple of samples every two weeks that I think might work in the direction of what you want. And I'll post them to you. And when you when we get one that's right, that works, you tell me and I'll make the paint by that formula. Turned out the formula was surprisingly easy. It was two products which they already had, and it worked. It was just getting the proportions right. Yeah. Because my other spec for this was that the paint couldn't shrink too much in the mold, because otherwise it wouldn't make a true cast of the mold. Yeah. Admittedly, it took a year and a half, but he got it. And wow. he said, Right, okay, now we're going to package this up and we're going to start shipping it to you. So that was the 45 gallon containers order. And it showed up and it said on the site, our Golden Artist Colors label. And then the name of the paint, it said Secunda Pace. Oh, wow. And I thought, brilliant. That's incredible. That is brilliant. incredible. So years later, Mark and Barbara Golden, I got to know them and I visited them and stuff. And there was a conversation where they said, um, we think that we might, because of course their job is to shift quantities of paint. Yeah. And they're thinking there's this one guy, you know, you've got a graph and it goes along at the bottom. It's like <laughs> people tend to buy like two gallons a year. And then there's this guy who's bought, Boom. Four, you know, yeah, 200 gallons yeah. like up there, you know. And they're like, how do we get more of him? So they said to me, maybe we can make this paint that works in molds and sell it to more artists, you know. And I said, yeah, I think you would sell vast quantities of it, you know. Uh, and they said, we'd like to call it Secunda molding paste brilliant and i said i got no, really no. excited i said yeah please do <laughs> you know, they never produced it in commercial quantities and they never distributed it oh, and i was wow. i was really disappointed i thought oh come on you know but you know there's an artist now in new york who integrates into big sculptures huge sheets of paint and i've got to get in touch with this guy because i know i know a number of artists around the world who have really taken the idea of making something out of paint to a very advanced stage. There are probably six or eight. So this guy has gone really mainstream and his sculptures are selling for huge amounts of money. So, you know, it'd be good to put together an exhibition and kind of review how people are using the material. Um, I put together an exhibition like that in 2003, which was called Paint in 2003. Um, so it's about time for another one. Yeah, I think so. It's, it's the ideal year to do it again, isn't it? Being 23. The, the material that you're talking about, to what size a mould can you put it in? Is it just endless? Would it be like, Anything. like you, could you use it like plaster? Oh yeah, 100%. Wow. 100%. Because what happens is that as the exotherm process goes off, it, it congeals. And what's the oh. shrinkage? 
zero. Absolutely really? none whatsoever. There's none. And and how about the cost? Because it's got to be more than a plaster or a concrete. Actually, it's about the same as buying a tub of acrylic gel. Um, in okay. the last two years, it's gone up a bit. It was 35 quid for five, four and a half litres. And now, and then you add the hardener and it becomes five litres. And now it's about 47, 50. Yeah. Coming alongside the cost of acrylic. Um, the reason that I started buying the industrial paint or looking for an industrial paint was that once I moved back to England from New York, I couldn't buy my Secunda paste any longer because I had to import it, which meant I paid for it a second time. Yeah. And then fat. So I paid for it three times. And so I imported one gallon tub. And then and then I realized that I can't use this anymore. It's not, not viable, no. So for anyone that, that may be listening who's contemplating using it in their practice, what is the, the product that you use? It's called non-solvent-based epoxy floor paint. Oh, okay. Non-solvent-based epoxy floor paint. Brilliant. It's the least harmless industrial paint you've probably ever laid your hands on. Um, you don't want to get it on your clothes because you'll never, ever get it <laughs> off your clothes again. Um, but once you made enough paintings with it, your jeans will stand up on their own. Are you saying that from experience? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready get 30, ready get 20 20, 20 ready get 20 20, ready get 15 15, 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Which piece that you've created, Piers, has got the strongest emotional connection, do you think? I think I think it's a series of works. I think it's the works which I've made about ISIS. I've made work about ISIS in the form of charcoal drawings and prints, where I've made uh, and ink drawings, where I've taken the charcoal from places that ISIS destroyed, such as the Mosul Museum in Iraq, where they made a big fanfare of smashing up all the art that was inside the antiquities. Uh, and I gathered up charcoal and took it to my studio, made work with it, ground it down to produce an ink, uh, made prints with it. Uh, one of them got sold in Christie's a couple of years ago. There's uh, one of those works as of last week in the Iraq National Museum in Baghdad and four in the Mosul Museum. Wow. Um, and then at the same time that I was in the Mosul Museum gathering up the charcoal, which was in early 2018, just after the museum had been liberated from ISIS. Um, I also had permission from the Iraqi culture minister, whose name was Friad Rwandizi, to make molds of the broken stone texture of these ISIS smashed sculptures. So I also took home a lot of molds. And from those molds, I've made a lot of work that's been shown all over the world. Um, 
And those works always generate a reaction from people when they realize what they're looking at. And there have been occasions, several occasions, when people come into galleries and see those works and confronted by them and they start crying. Yeah. And it's it's because there's a sort of, I suppose there's a there's a there's a moment where you realize that you can't turn off the television channel. It's in front of you. It's happening, yeah. And you can look at it and you can see the texture on down to a granular level. And that gives you an understanding of the damage, which you can't have when you see it on the TV screen or in a photograph from Instagram or whatever it might be. You're physically confronted with this. Although it's a reproduction and it serves as a metaphor for the destruction because it isn't cast in full from a broken object, it's just the broken stone texture that I've molded. They have a very, very strong emotional resonance, both for myself and for people who are confronted by me. Um, and for me, that's really important and that's powerful. Yeah, you, you stopped having to use your, your mind to create a narrative because the story's right in front of you, isn't it? Correct. Beautiful. Yeah. Can we talk about a show that you've got at the moment? The the Alderney exhibition that finished a, a couple of weeks ago. Sorry. Um, that's quite all right. That people can always see my work because I have work on permanent display at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Um, so my work is always on on view there. Uh, but the Alderney exhibition was a sort of an additional limb to my studio practice. I had researched the World War II occupation of Alderney, which is um, a British dependency Channel Island. It's eight miles off the coast of France. I researched it for three and a half years, getting on towards four years, um, with the help of a large number of professional and amateur researchers, uh, academics from all over the world, um, archivists working in Spain, France, Germany, Russia, UK and the United States and found huge quantities of documentation and material which was unknown. The largest part of the story, the important thing to understand is that the island of Alderney was evacuated at the beginning of the Second World War and about 10 days later the Germans arrived. Oh wow. And when they arrived very very shortly afterwards, which was in 1940, they started bringing huge quantities of slave and forced laborers to the island to fortify the island. Now, if you look at a map and you look at the Cherbourg Peninsula, which is on the north coast of France, slightly to the west, it's on the, on the western side of Normandy, you can see the Channel Islands to the west of the Cherbourg Peninsula. If the D-Day invasion was gonna take the Channel Islands back, which was the UK's proposal, they'd have to hit Alderney first because it's the most Northern Island. Mm. So moving southwards towards the French coast, that's the first one that they'd encounter. In the US National Archives, I found a document which is called Operation Hadrian. It's a proposal for breaking the Atlantic Wall, hence the word Hadrian. And it was the British proposal for what became Operation Overlord. The Americans said, after Operation Hadrian, after the proposal, they said, casualties are too high because the casualty numbers to take Alderney back from the Germans, and this is before they've even hit Guernsey and Jersey, and then the coast of France, the casualty numbers for hitting Alderney and taking Alderney back were almost exactly the same 
as the entire casualty number for the D-Day beaches. Wow. So taking the Channel Islands back was never an option. It couldn't, wow. it, it was never going to be possible. And so the invasion went to the east of the Sherville Peninsula and hit what we now call the D-Day beaches, because they could go straight to the shore and be in France instantly. Whereas if they took the Channel Islands back, they lost all the element of surprise. The entire German military of Europe would be there on the coast waiting for them when they finally hit the coast, having depleted their numbers so dramatically that landing on the coast would have been a complete suicide move. But this, this island is only the size of a, a bloody village anyway, isn't it? Three and a half miles long, half mile wide. It's wow. tiny, tiny little speck. But Hitler and the German high command got personally involved and demanded that the Channel Islands and specifically Alderney would be fortified to become, in inverted commas, an impregnable fortress. And that required hundreds of thousands of slave labourers to come and build concrete fortifications all over the island. And the Germans took battleship guns off battleships and put them on the hills on Alderney and brought in a massive garrison. Estimates of the numbers vary slightly, but it's in thousand plus range uh, to guard the island and prevent anybody from taking it back. Um, and they succeeded because it was, I think it was the second last or the third last place occupied by Germany that was handed back to the Allies at the end of the war. Yeah, wow. So the unconditional surrender was signed in Germany and Hitler had shot himself and the war was over and it was finished and uh, Alderney was still occupied. Wow. In the last month of the war, they were still shelling the French mainland. Wow. Germany and Berlin were surrounded and the Battle of Berlin was happening. The Russians were entering the city of Berlin Allies were entering the city from the other side, and Alderney was still shelling the mainland. Because it was Incredible. totally, totally cut off, yeah. Fanatics, they were fanatics. On, on the island, do you know what the, the ratio was of prisoner to, to guard? No, it's, it's very difficult to know because uh, the number of uh, prisoners who were brought to the island is speculative because the paperwork no longer exists. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly difficult to know, but it's in the thousands for certain. Uh, I doubt that the uh, that the Germans had anywhere near one to one number of um, their garrison with the soldiers uh, of the soldiers to the, to the forced and slave laborers. They didn't need to. They had prison camps all over the island. They had a concentration camp called Lager Silt. There's a second camp called Nordany, which the French determined in 1947 through the legal process. Yeah. was also a concentration camp. Um, there was a camp called Helgeland on the north coast, which was uh, the camp for the Jewish prisoners until they had completed all the construction in the area of that camp. Then that camp was disassembled and moved east, and that became Nordany. And Nordany was the Jewish camp for the second half of the war uh, on Alderney. And did you find out what happened to the prisoners once that their uses were no longer needed? Were they disposed of or passed on to, to work elsewhere? Some of them were cycled back out of the island and shipped back to the mainland. And I'm aware that we're talking about them as a product, and that's only the way that, that they were thinking. Well, of course so, they're human, of course they're yeah. human beings. Um, and identifying them and giving them back their identity and giving them back a face. Yeah so that you can look at them in the eye as part of the project. So I've been searching high and low for photographs 
of people who went to the island and I found a few um, and their faces have never been connected to their names before Beautiful. and that makes them real people again you yeah. know and you can you can understand their story on a human level so I, I appreciate that of course the Germans treated them as numbers and a, a, a volume of labor that was simply moved from one place mm. to another. They were massively mistreated on Alderney. Um, they were given starvation rations and made to work heavy labor hours and um, intensive work, which depleted their bodies completely. Some of the prisoners only lasted for a few months on the island. Some of them lasted long enough that they were cycled back out ended up back on the mainland, whether it was in another camp, being transported to a, a death camp in the east, um, or a few of them, very small number, six that I know of, escaped. And they escaped always in pairs, and they always escaped in, on boats. So everything that you could think of um, or that you've heard about, with, with the exception of death camps where people are brought to be killed, all of, apart from that, all of the stories that you hear about, about concentration camps and forced labor and the people in the striped uniforms and the abuse, and beatings and shootings, it all happened on Alderney. Brilliant. And it's, it's something I never knew of, Piers. I never be, knew of it until I knew of you. Yeah, well, it's incredible the number of people and very, very high powered people, people working in politics and all sorts, who came into the exhibition and said, God, you know, I never knew there was a concentration camp on British soil. And then I'd say, well, this is why the exhibition is here. This is why it exists. There have been books published about the occupation of Alderney. But sometimes the information doesn't really get through because books only get circulated up to a certain point. If they don't yeah. get serialised in the newspapers, they don't get the wider readership. You know, and it just gets the story time. just sometimes get diluted, doesn't it? Yeah. It's not until... You get someone like yourself who concentrates it all into one exhibition. That, um... Well, I think, an, I think an exhibition is a very interesting way of presenting this kind of information because there was a very, very effective book published uh, last year by an academic uh, called Caroline Sturdy Coles. It's probably about the most decisive description in, in, in detailed sort of uh, analytical form, academically published. Uh, of what happened on Alderney. It's, it's a remarkable work. And what work did you create on Alderney? So I made 32 prints, which are uh, exhibited, grouped together on the wall in clusters, in small black frames. They're all physically touching each other in grids on the wall. And a grid might be four prints or six prints or eight prints. And they have very bright colored backgrounds and the colored backgrounds are from extreme close-up photographs that are taken with my phone on Alderney of wildflowers, and Alderney is celebrated for its wildflower fields, or foliage or the turquoise of the ocean and it's yellow sand, white yellow sand beaches and turquoise sea and the blue of the sky. So I'm juxtaposing the beauty of the island with this very dark history. And so I've got these colored backgrounds and then over the top of them are printed or with the help of a silkscreen, professional silkscreen printer, um, printed black ink to make the pictures. And the black ink is printed with a half tone dot like an old newspaper image. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the ink itself is made from cordite, which is the explosive inside artillery, which was 
uh, from abandoned artillery left behind on Alderney after the war. And it was decommissioned by a guy who was ex-military. So the same way I was talking earlier about making my own ink with charcoal, I had to make the cordite, well, he made the cordite into charcoal first by burning it um, in his garage, which was pretty terrifying. He de decommissioned these pieces of heavy artillery in his garage, you know, it's really scary, <laughs> um, by pulling them apart and disassembling them and scraping out the cordite and then burning it in small chunks and then handing it over to me in, in a bag. And then I brought that back to my studio and ground it down, made it very, very fine, and then mixed the printing medium with it and handed it over to the printer. Um, so you've got the burned German gunpowder overlaid on these images of the color of the beauty of the island. Fascinating. And so that's that's how the, the works display the contradiction of the beauty of the place, which is spectacular. Everybody should go and see Albany. It's incredible. It's like the island that, that got lost and it should be in the Mediterranean. Somehow it ended up in the British Channel. Did yeah, you do any castings? Yeah, I was shown by a local fella um, a scratching in wet concrete in a tunnel under the hills of Alderney, which was made by a man called Vasily Vasilievich Kostin. And he put his name into wet cement in the concrete render on a wall in a vaulted chamber deep under the hills of Alderney. And that tunnel and the, and the vaulted chamber were dug by slave laborers. I know his whole life story. From He'd written his name. He'd, first off, he'd written Stalingrad, Arakskaya Street 11, Kostin VV, and then his date of birth, and but only the year, and then the date that he'd written the inscription, which was 1943. And from that information, with the help of researchers in the United States and in Russia, I found out where he was born, what village, what his family did. Uh, he was born in a village called Staro-Ananesko, which was in the upper reaches of the Volga River, right up in the north of Russia. And he married a Ukrainian lady whose name was Pelagia, and they had two children. And then when the war starts, he's a chauffeur. And when Germany breaks its peace pact with Russia and invades Russia, he's forced into the Russian military. About two months later, close to the western border of Russia, he's captured by the Germans and he disappears into the German slave labor system. And he resurfaces in a work group in Leipzig, in a camp in Leipzig, Lager 7 at Leipzig. Then he disappears again. And then I know the date of the inscription on Alderney. And in due course, I found the second labor document where he said that his name, his wife's name was Pelagia, but he's calling himself a Ukrainian. He's not saying he's Russian because if he was, if he said I'm Russian, they would treat him really terribly. That was second only to the Nazis to being Jewish. Okay. If they shot you, it didn't matter. It didn't mean a thing. Yeah. So he says he's Ukrainian. And then he starts saying at the same time that he's a Maurer, a wall builder or a Mason. So he's telling, he's not, he was a chauffeur. <laughs> but he's telling them, he's being quite clever. So he's, he's going, I'm a chauffeur. Yeah. In other words, you can give me a cushy job if you want, mm. but I'm also a Mason. And they go, oh, you're a Mason. Right, get to work. And so that's what he ends up doing. He's working in this, this Leipzig work group. When I went back to the Russian state archive, I found a document which showed at the end of the war that he went to the Gulag. Wow. So he survived the war, he survived Alderney, slave laborers on Alderney who became exhausted and unable to work got thrown off the cliffs into the ocean. 
He survived all of that and he ends up back in Russian hands and they say, oh, you're still alive. You made it through the war. That means you're a traitor. Go to the gulag. Because <laughs> oh, he didn't no. fight to death. No. And so by Russian law, that meant he was a traitor and they sent him to the gulag. And uh, whether he survived the gulag or not, we'll never know. So you never found a death certificate for him? No. Um, unfortunately, Putin is destroying the records for the Gulag as fast oh, as possible. Okay. Evidently, he doesn't like people saying bad things about uh, Stalin. So uh, I think, I, I mean, for me personally, the cat's out of the bag on that one. But anyway, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Gulag Museum in Moscow told me that the Filtration prison was a place that they'd never heard of before. They didn't know previously that oh, it wow. existed. And that as a result of this research that I found a Gulag prison camp, uh, which is kind of incredible, but they weren't able to tell me anything about where he would have been sent, what would have become of him, what kind of work he would have been made to do. It would all depend upon somebody's decision and assign. Well, that just gun. goes to show, Piers, that the destruction of even your own culture works a generation down the line. Yeah, because or, it gets forgotten if it's yeah. not documented. That's absolutely true. But the, what fascinated me while you were saying about his journey and and him just um, scraping that into the wall, yeah, is he put so much information there? It wasn't just Gary was here. Yeah, he put yeah. that information there as if he's leaving a a footprint of himself for for someone to come along and find. A hundred percent. The, I mean, if you'd been caught doing that, you'd have been taken out and shot immediately or, or just on the spot. Yeah. They would have wiped over the render and it would be gone forever. You know, the whole point of him doing that was that somebody in the future would find it. He probably thought he wasn't going to survive. Yeah. He probably thought you wouldn't see the end of the war. And he put all that information there so that somebody would find it and at some stage probably would be able to tell his family what became of him. Yeah. Getting back to Alderney, is that where you've done the cast the molding of the um the wall the, the execution wall. yeah, yeah that's the execution right wall. yeah i mean this project has multiple limbs and one of them is this execution wall so chilling it is when i first looked at it i thought that's not a target practice wall because mm. when you do target practice you set up targets equal distances and people shoot at those targets and when the targets have been shot at you take them down the next group of people put targets up in the same places and keep shooting and so over the course of time what you end up with is extremely dense clusters of bullet damage equal distances apart usually horizontal along the same kind of line and it's immediately and instantly identifiable it's inside an enclosed space the majority of the bullet impact marks are below three meters so i thought okay to be certain of this and i know that there's from the very beginning, I've known with this Alderney project that there's going to be a need for the proof, of the, the, the kind of burden of proof on me. I'm going to need to prove what I'm saying. I have to find documents that tell me things that are not known. And I put that, literally, I reproduce it in the work so that the information is unquestionable. So to move that forward, I thought, well, first off, let's get a mold of this wall. So I got permission. I was very surprised I was given it, but I got, got permission. The wall's four and a half meters long, big. Made a mold of it, got all the sections, stored them away carefully. And then I started looking for people who could do forensic work. 
and come and look at it and determine for themselves as scientists make an analysis of this. And a guy in New York introduced me to a forensic scientist in New York City who worked at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And he had run a New York City police forensic lab. And his specialization was bullet damage, bullet impact marks, gunshot residue, and crime scenes involving uh, shooting, where he had to recreate the crime scene. In other words, using what he found physically, evidence, recreate the scenario yeah. in order to understand what had happened. So he then brought in a guy who was a specialist, a friend of his who's a specialist in what they called antique firearms, in this instance, Second World War. And they looked at the wall and they said, well, we'll tell you what we think it is, you know? And they went away. And I thought that they might produce a report saying, um, within the bounds of probability, it's likely that this is yeah, an execution. Yeah, yeah. And they, their, their conclusion was so decisive, there wasn't even a millimeter for wiggle room. No. They said no. that the, the determination was sufficient that they could say without any question at all that it's a firing squad execution. Cut and dried. And I called one of the guys up, his name's Peter, uh, sorry, Nick, Nicholas. I called him up and I said, um, thanks for this conclusion, this analysis, I understand it. Makes a lot of sense, I get it. Um, it's very decisive. If somebody questioned this and I decided to sue them to prove that they're wrong, would you come over to the UK and sit in a um, witness stand in a courtroom and give expert witness testimony? And he said, do it tomorrow. Brilliant. And this is a guy who sat on over 500 court cases giving expert witness wow. testimony. United States being one of the most armed nations in the world and him being one of the most experienced forensic specialists in the realm of gunshot and gun crime and the associated techniques of determining what crime scene involved. I think it'd be very hard to go over him to somebody else and get <laughs> yeah. a, a determination otherwise, yeah. you know? And then there's physical evidence, like there was a bullet that was in the wall that had been removed before I took my mold and the guy who removed it gave it to me. Wow. He sent it to a forensic lab near Leeds and they did an analysis, uh, what's, what's known as a spectroscopy analysis. And that analyzes the metal down to, a, the, a, down to an atomic level. And it tells you what all the alloys, lead is an alloy, it's built up of other metals. What, what the alloy of lead, of the bullet, consists of. And it gives you a very, very detailed breakdown. And I went to a fellow who used to work for Manchester Firearms Unit. And I said, how do I get standard issue German pistol, rifle, and light machine gun rounds from World War II. And now this guy's retired, and his job is to supply militaria to the film business. Okay. So I thought, if anyone in England knows, and several people said, oh, you need to speak to this guy. In the end, I thought, right, I'll just have to call this I, guy. I know of him. You're joking. Has he got a, a farm? I think he does live on a farm. Yeah. This the guy, yeah. So he procured for me unopened boxes of German pistol rifle and light machine gun ammunition. <laughs> and, and, and then I cut the lead out of the bullets and gave it to the lab. 
bagged each one, gave it to the lab, and they did analysis of the bullet from the wall against all the other bullet samples, the lead samples. And they called me and they said, it's a Mauser rifle round. Wow. And Mauser was the standard issue German rifle yeah. of World War II. It's the AK-47 of its day. And if you're going to shoot somebody in front of a wall in execution, you'd use your Mauser rifle. Um, and the physical distance you need to stand back is available in that space. But only if you shoot at that particular wall and the prescribed distance is 40 feet. So the, the wall behind doesn't bounce the bullet back and you kill yourself. If you yeah. put something soft in between like a person, you don't shoot yourself. It's an interesting thing. Executions by firing squad are, are, are procedural. The procedures are described in military manuals and they haven't yeah. varied That's since before the American Civil War. Well. In fact, they, the variation is so little that in the American manuals from the Civil War until 1950s, the ones in the 50s still describe it as execution by musketry. Muskets were phased out in 1853 in America. And that's the extent to which it doesn't need to be changed because it's just a procedure. Wow. Yeah. So a procedure, a military procedure, always produces the same result. Yeah. And the result is physical and it's the bullet impact scatter pattern. And it's a fingerprint. And you can identify it. And it doesn't look like an attacking or a defending bullet impact pattern. Yeah. It has its own form. Yeah, yeah. These forensic guys very quickly realized and were able to identify. Can I ask you a couple of questions? Please do. The funding for this, to get a guy from America to come and have a look, could I ask, and you don't have to answer, how the funding is done for These such projects. a small project? Yeah. And it's coming from information and experts from all over the world. It's got to be vast. So the guys in New York were so interested in this project that they said, for the cost of the airline tickets, we'll come and do it. There's no fee. Okay. okay. If, if I had been a company going to them, they told me that they would have charged me thirty to $40,000 okay. to do that work. They did it for nothing. Yeah. They did it for the cost of the airline ticket. Um, all the rest of the research... If you find the right researcher, an archivist, who knows an archive really well and can drill down into the information really fast and get to the exact place that you want, you can procure information in a surgical fashion very, very fast, and it costs very little. So one of the guys who I worked with in Washington, for about $150, he got me about 89,000 pages of information, most of which had in it somewhere the word Alderney. And from that, I was able to pull out huge quantities of information about what's going on on Alderney in between D-Day and the end of the war. Information yeah. that's never been published before. Well, I think what it is as well, Piers, it's like, just like you said there, whether it's Toby Thompson in his little room underneath the paint plant, yeah. or someone who runs a department in the world's leading university, when you've yeah. got someone who is specialised in their field, no matter yeah. what that field is, they have got a certain mind. And Always. when you present them with a challenge, yeah. it's not just a question that needs answering. It is a puzzle that they have to complete. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, no exactly. matter what. And, and money and cost doesn't come into it. It's irrelevant. There were only out of um, the, the list of researchers who, who helped me, professional researchers, extensive. I mean, I think there were about 30, but only about four of them said, I charge by the hour. Okay, fine. So yeah, there were some costs involved. I mean, going to Alderney with the molding materials and with technicians who could help me to make the mold of this wall and then get all the parts back to the UK. Yeah, the cost involved in doing that, you know. This project has been a loss leader, but I'm putting it together as a package to offer it to museums as a touring exhibition. And if two museums take the exhibition, I've recouped all my costs. Okay. You know, that's that's the approach that I've taken. It's beautiful. Could you just tell us what the actual artwork you made of the wall? You've given a few yeah. little indications, but so, could you tell us about that, please? Yeah, well, so far I've only cast a very small fragment of the wall, of the bullet damaged wall, the execution wall, um, and it's about a metre by a metre. And it's white, and it has, it's basically square, very slightly off square, and it's made of my industrial floor paint. So it goes straight up on the wall with a couple of metal brackets at the top and at the bottom, holding it up against the wall. And so what you see is a relief sculpture. It's the texture of the concrete of the wall, and then it's pockmarked with bullet holes. And there are predominantly two sizes of bullet holes. There are very small ones, which are about the size of the end knuckle of your thumb. And those ones don't break through the surface of the paint so that you can see the wall of the gallery behind. And then there are larger ones which are, you know, about the length of your index finger or a little bit more. <clears throat> and those are craters which have a hole in the middle and you can see the gallery wall behind. Those shots predominantly are misses in the process of an execution. And the small ones are shots where the bullet has passed through material like a person density of the body, that kind of thing, and then struck the concrete wall and made a small indentation. And, and we know this partly because one of the forensics guys, Peter, who lives in Pennsylvania, made a reproduction of the surface of the wall, of the whole wall. It's granite blocks with a concrete render over the front. Wow. And I gave him two, I know, four pounds of Alderney sand, and he mixed it with his cement, and he made the render to the right thickness with the granite blocks behind, he stood back at 40 feet with a Mauser rifle, ammunition from 1938, and shot the wall. And that, so that's a, a, a process of recreating the crime scene under controlled conditions. And the bullet impact mark, when, it, when the bullet struck the wall directly, so it would have been a miss shot in an execution scenario, was the same as the size and shape of the bullet impact marks on the wall in Alderney. And then he put ballistic gelatin in front of the wall, which is equal in density to a human torso. So what, what ballistic gelatin is, it's, it's sort of like a slightly yellow rubbery gelatin. Yeah. And it's made by a laboratory which casts it to certain thicknesses. So you can buy it in a thickness that simulates the density of a hand or a head. Or a, or a body, or an arm, or a leg, or a foot, so that you can determine why a bullet impact mark is a certain size. And that's sufficient for a courtroom. So he fired through the ballistic gelatin at the recreation of the Alderney wall, and those bullet impact marks 
matched the small end of the thumb knuckle sized bullet impact marks on this wall of which there are many, many. Well, that's scary. Yeah, it is. Piers, it's been, it's been fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Gary. Um, how can anyone see anything you've got coming up, Piers? Um, well, there are two ways. Uh, one is to go to the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, where I have work on permanent display in the Middle East rooms. Yeah. I have an ISIS painting in there. Um, or if you're not passing through Oxford or not near Oxford of May, I have work in an exhibition which is called Orange River, which is at 66 St George's Square in London, near Pimlico Tube Station. Nice. Um, alternatively, of course, if you're in Iraq, Iraq National <laughs> Museum's got work. Mosul Museum, of course. They've, they've got four works of mine now. And website and social media? Yeah, website, piersecunda.com. Social media, the same, piersecunda. Perfect. Instagram. Instagram is my prevailing social media. Piers, thank you so much for your time. I'm so I'm You're just welcome. looking to see how much I've taken up of it. Um, but it was, it was fascinating, great. man. It was fascinating. Was thank you very much for your time. A pleasure, and, um, Gary. Thank you thank very you, much. Man. Take care. Speak to you soon. All the best. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. It's a podcast that's produced with the help of the listener. And if you like what you've heard, and you think you might be able to give a little support, there's two ways in which you can do it. If you go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile, you'll find a Linktree drop-down box. And in that box, you'll find two links. One is called Buy Us A Coffee, and it's pretty much that. You can make a one-off payment the price of a cup of coffee. Or, if you're able and want to do it more long-term, you can become a Ministry of Arts Patreon where you can sign up to support us on a monthly basis and 100% of your support goes back into the podcast. And if you're not able to do that, that's absolutely fine. This content is free for everyone. But we would urge you to follow us on your socials and show us a bit of love that way. Either way, thanks for listening and see you next time. Ta-da. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.